Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. This is part two of Operating on the President, Election Day Edition. Now, I won't comment on the recent election in the U.S., as this is a historical podcast, not a political one. Instead, we'll focus on three previous presidents from the 20th century, who may be more familiar to my listeners than the ones from the previous podcast. Keep following me on Twitter to learn about more U.S. presidents that have had surgery at one time or another. Today's presidents cover a range of operations, from emergency bowel surgery to orthopedic surgery to trauma surgery. All are fascinating, and certainly each event has thought to impact history in some way or another. Let's find out more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's start with the 34th U.S. President, Dwight David Eisenhower, or Ike for short. Of interest, his family name, Eisenhower, is German for Ironhewer or Miner. Ike started out in the military, a graduate of the famed West Point Military Academy, and worked his way up the ranks to become the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in Europe during World War II, and was later the first Supreme Commander of NATO. He entered the 1952 presidential race and won in a landslide. The story of his medical condition that led to his surgery actually starts in 1923. Eisenhower, then 33 years old, had bouts of lower abdominal pain, which led to an appendectomy, meaning removal of the appendix. The final diagnosis on the appendix was not typical of an acute appendicitis. He continued to have intermittent episodes of abdominal pain throughout his military career. In 1938, he had a major episode and was hospitalized with a plan to operate for obstruction, or blocking, of his bowels, but he was able to move his bowels and so avoided the surgery. These episodes would knock him out for days to weeks, but no one made a consistent diagnosis. Not until his personal physician, Dr. Howard Snyder, sent the president for x-rays in the spring of 1956 that looked at the small bowel, which showed something called regional enteritis. This means chronic inflammation of the bowels, typically the small bowel. Now, a number of diseases can cause it, but one of the most common is Crohn's disease. Named after American gastroenterologist Burl Bernard Crohn at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital, who described a series of cases in 1932, Crohn's disease is a chronic intermittent inflammatory disease of the gastrointestinal tract with no definite cause, but the description of Eisenhower's lifelong symptoms seems to fit the bill. Now, on June 8th of 1956, Eisenhower developed severe abdominal pain in the middle of the night, and Dr. Snyder was called to see him. When the president didn't improve, he was moved to Walter Reed Hospital, an army hospital in Washington, D.C. that dates back to 1909. It was named after Walter Reed, an army physician who proved that yellow fever is transmitted by mosquitoes rather than direct contact, which was an important development in the completion of the Panama Canal. The high mortality rate among workers actually stopped the construction of the canal. In 1884, over 200 workers were dying per month from yellow fever and malaria. Now, once the U.S. took over the project from the French in 1904, they took steps to reduce the mosquito population, and within two years, the deaths from mosquito-borne illnesses were nearly eliminated. Anyways, I digress. Once in hospital and following some x-rays, a diagnosis of small bowel obstruction was made. Dr. Snyder decided that Eisenhower needed to be seen by a surgeon. He called General Leonard Heaton, the commander of Walter Reed, but there was a problem. Dr. Heaton was on vacation in Virginia, so a plane was sent for him and a police escort met Heaton at the National Airport. Probably nervous to operate on the sitting president, Heaton called in three more surgeons to consult. Now, the other reason may have been political, as one was a military surgeon, the other two civilians that were prominent local surgeons, one academic and one in private practice. Now, unfortunately, when you get this many cooks in the kitchen, problems arise. The four of them couldn't agree on the cause of the obstruction, arguing between Crohn's disease and adhesions which are like little fibrous bands in the abdomen that can form from previous episodes of inflammation in which bowel can get trapped and blocked. Now back then there was a saying in surgery, 
quote, the sun should not rise or set on a bowel obstruction, end quote, meaning anyone with it should be operated on within 12 hours as a rule of thumb. Eisenhower was now well past that, and by 1 a.m. on June 9th, more than 24 hours after his symptoms began and after the third set of x-rays confirming that he wasn't getting better, the president was prepped for surgery. Now, the operation began at 2.59 a.m. Once in the abdomen, the surgeons discovered a stricture or narrowing of the small bowel, which looked chronic and fibrotic, involving the last 30 to 40 centimeters of the terminal ileum, which is the end portion of the small bowel, before it meets the large bowel. As there was no active Crohn's disease, the surgeons agreed to leave this segment in place and just bypass it by attaching healthy ileum above the stricture to the transverse colon, or large bowel, past the stricture in what is known as an iliotransverse anastomosis. A few interesting things about this choice. At the time, leaving in the diseased bowel was agreed upon by the four surgeons present, and in fact, one of the consultants leaned in over the primary surgeon Heaton's shoulder and said, Leonard, if you resect that bowel, I will have your license taken away. And Heaton also knew that Eisenhower intended to run for re-election that year, despite the operation, and so the surgery chosen would allow for the fastest recovery. The operation was over by 4.52 a.m. Eisenhower recovered well, despite a minor wound infection, and would go on to win a second term. He had no further episodes of Crohn's disease in his lifetime, but did undergo a couple of other surgeries, including an open cholecystectomy, or gallbladder surgery, as the era of laparoscopic surgery had not yet come. And hey, see my previous podcasts on the history of laparoscopy. His final operation was actually for lysis, or cutting, of adhesions from recurrent bowel obstruction. Now of interest, there was concern from the anesthesia team before this famous operation, as Eisenhower had a history of heart disease. In fact, just the prior year, on September 24th of 1955, he suffered a myocardial infarction, or a heart attack. Dr. Paul Dudley White, a prominent cardiologist, was called in, and for those cardiac nerds out there, one of the names from Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. The news of the president's heart attack caused a panic on Wall Street, and by the end of the day on September 26th, the Monday, the Dow Jones had dropped 6%, a paper loss of $14 billion, the largest decline since the crash of 1929. This was greater than the drops following the assassination of Kennedy and the shooting of Reagan, who happened to be our next two subjects. But before we get to them, just a couple more notes on Ike. For those curious for more of the medical details, you can actually get the original article that describes the case, written by the four surgeons involved and published in May of 1964 in the Annals of Surgery. And finally, had he not survived to serve a second term, many of his achievements would not have happened, possibly most famously his farewell address in which he warns us of the military-industrial complex. Still a very relevant topic, and if you haven't heard of it, Google it or visit my Facebook page. I'll put a link there. So let's move on to the 35th president, John F. Kennedy. Now the F stands for Fitzgerald, in case you didn't know. Now although most remember him or have an image of him as a young, dynamic president, he actually had a whole host of medical issues which plagued him throughout his life. His brother Robert summed it up thusly, quote, at least half the days he spent on this earth were days of intense physical pain, end quote. Now, I won't dwell on all of them, as we will focus on one particular problem, but just to give you a flavor, here are some of the ailments he suffered from. From a young age, he had recurrent intestinal problems, which were investigated thoroughly but never diagnosed, extensive food and environmental allergies, recurrent upper respiratory infections, recurrent urinary tract infections, and inflammation of the prostate, hypothyroidism, and a disease of the adrenal glands, called Addison disease, which was diagnosed in 1947 when he had a life-threatening adrenal crisis at the age of 30. But what we're going to talk about today is his chronic low back pain. This actually started at age 21 and persisted during his time in World War II in the Navy. 
To alleviate this, he had to wear a corset and sleep on a bedboard. This got worse after the battle in the South Pacific where his patrol torpedo boat was sliced in half by an enemy destroyer and Kennedy spent nine hours in the water clinging to the hull of his ship before being rescued. Now, near the end of his service, he was investigated further and in June of 1944 underwent exploratory surgery of his back, which revealed no definite disc herniation, where the rubbery cushions called discs, which sit between the bones called vertebrae, pushes out of place, but some soft degenerative cartilage was removed. Now, this did not improve his symptoms, and he had nearly constant back pain. Now, during this time, Kennedy won a seat in Congress and married Jackie Lee Bouvier. In August of 1954, 10 years after his first surgery, a team from the Leahy Clinic, started by the famous surgeon Dr. Frank Leahy on Beacon Street in Boston, visited him at the Kennedy compound at Cape Cod and recommended a new surgical procedure. They wanted to fuse the now degenerated and narrowed lumbosacral disc and left sacroiliac joint. This took place at the New York Hospital for Special Surgery on October 21st. One of the confounding issues was his adrenal insufficiency from Addison disease, making intraoperative management tricky to say the least. The fusion was done with a metal plate and screws. His post-operative course was rocky, with a urinary tract infection and reaction to the anesthesia that was so severe that a priest was called in and he received the last rites of the church. It took him two months to leave the hospital, and Kennedy went to Palm Beach to recuperate. During this time, he wrote Profiles in Courage, a book of short biographies of U.S. Senators which actually won the 1957 Pulitzer Prize, the only time a president has won the award. The recovery was not as successful, as he had an 8-inch surgical wound that was not fully closed and which drained pus. He had to be readmitted to hospital in February of 1955 to remove the metal plates and screws, and later another procedure to accomplish lumbosacral fusion with a bone graft. For those keeping score at home, that is now four surgeries on his lower back. Kennedy's fifth and final surgery was in September of 1957, which was an incision and drainage of a wound abscess under general anesthesia. By this point, the president had enough of surgery and turned to a number of experts to find a non-surgical solution. This developed into a regular regimen of swimming, hot baths, ethyl chloride spray, which is a topical freezing agent to numb painful areas, heel lift for leg length discrepancy, use of a rocking chair, and probably most importantly, regular trigger point injections with procaine, also known as Novocaine. The doctor who administered these injections, Dr. Max Jacobson, was known as Dr. Feelgood and became a frequent visitor to the White House. The degree to which Kennedy suffered was well hidden from the public. During the 1960 presidential campaign, he frequently used crutches to minimize his back pain, but was reluctant to use them during campaign appearances. By the time the Bay of Pigs crisis was going on in April of 1961, the president was a mess. In addition to the back pain, he suffered from constant diarrhea and had a urinary tract infection. In the five months starting in June of 1961, Dr. Jacobson visited the president an astounding 36 times. He started to wear an elastic back and abdominal support brace and crutches except when in public view. His back pain stabilized by 1962 thanks to a new physician, Dr. Hans Krauss, who added hot packs, massage, and a comprehensive exercise program and a physical therapist to stretch muscles. Now, amazingly, despite this debilitating back issue and a number of other issues, Kennedy missed only one of the 1,000 days of his presidency. And in the final twist of fate, some historians suggest that his back problems contributed to his assassination. When the first bullet struck him in the back of the neck, his back brace held him up in a sitting position rather than slumping over, which allowed the second bullet to hit the back of his head, killing him. Maybe a bit far-fetched, but an interesting twist. Our final U.S. president to be covered was the 40th, and one that some of my listeners might have been around for, Ronald Reagan. He actually had a number of surgeries while president, 
which is probably not surprising given that he was nearly 70 at the beginning of his presidency. On July 13th of 1985, Reagan underwent a right hemicolectomy, which is the removal of the right side of his colon for colon cancer at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. He actually relinquished presidential power to the Vice President George H.W. Bush for eight hours, the first VP to serve as acting president. The procedure lasted just under three hours, and he resumed power later that day. Some historians think that the poor decisions made related to the Iran-Contra scandal were due to his recuperating from surgery, and apparently some of the decisions that Reagan made in the hospital he couldn't remember later. Now, he had surgery for an enlarged prostate on January 4th of 1987, and had surgery in January of 1989 for a Dupuytren's contracture, which is when thick fibrous tissue develops in the hand, making it difficult to fully extend the fingers. Side note, is named for Baron Guillaume Dupuytren, a French military surgeon in the early 1800s. But those aren't the surgeries I want to talk about. In what seems to be an unfortunate theme with these podcasts on U.S. presidents, which is assassination, on March 30, 1981, at 2.27 p.m., 70 days after taking office, the president and three others, Press Secretary James Brady, Secret Service Agent Timothy McCarthy, and Washington Police Officer Thomas Delahanty were shot by John Hinckley Jr. He used long-nosed 22 caliber bullets fired from a pistol at close range. One bullet ricocheted off the presidential limousine and entered Reagan's chest under his left arm. The bullet bounced off his left-sided seventh rib, damaging the lung and causing it to collapse, eventually lodging about one inch from his heart. It has been noted that Reagan's wound was more life-threatening than that of Garfield or McKinley, which implies that both would have survived had modern surgical care been available to them. Reagan did not initially know that he'd been shot and thought he'd cracked a rib from being pushed into the limo, but the Secret Service agents present saw him cough blood and so decided to transport him to the George Washington University Health Center in the limousine, arriving there in less than four minutes. Reagan walked into the emergency department under his own power but then collapsed. Resuscitation was initiated, including a chest tube, which showed dark blood suggesting a pulmonary artery injury. He needed surgery, and the lead operating surgeon was Dr. Benjamin Aaron, the 47-year-old chief of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery. It was a Monday, and he'd had little sleep, as he'd been called to the hospital for heart valve surgery, then a cabbage procedure. Dr. Aaron was in his office at 2.30 p.m. doing paperwork when he heard a news bulletin on the radio and then sirens. Once taken to the OR, Aaron performed a thoracotomy, we need to open the chest, which lasted 105 minutes. When the flattened bullet was extracted, Aaron dropped it into a cup held by a Secret Service agent. I wonder where that bullet is now. He then stitched up a bleeding artery, the diameter of a pencil, stopped some smaller bleeding vessels, and closed up. Following the surgery, the president recovered well, only developing a mild post-operative fever, and kept his sense of humor about the whole thing. In fact, in both the ER and the OR, Reagan was heard to have said to the teams, quote, I hope you are all Republicans, end quote. Let's go over some of the other players in this event. The motivation of the shooter, John Hinckley Jr., was not political, but rather an attempt to impress the actress Jodie Foster, with whom he was obsessed after seeing her in Taxi Driver. Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity and remained confined to a psychiatric facility and was just released on September 10th of this year, 2016, to the care of his mother. Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy was shot in the right chest after shielding the president at the first sounds of gunfire and would make a full recovery. Police officer Thomas Delahanty would suffer nerve damage from his neck wound and eventually had to actually retire because of it. But it was press secretary James Brady who suffered the most, having been shot in the head and suffering devastating brain injury, leaving him permanently disabled. He actually died in 2014 
and the medical examiner found that the cause of death was directly related to the 1981 shooting, making it a homicide 33 years later. The Brady Bill, named after him, was passed in 1993 and mandates federal background checks on firearm purchasers in the U.S. The final legacy for the shooting that I'll mention was that the emergency department where the president was treated was renamed the Ronald Reagan Institute for Emergency Medicine in 1991. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery, and I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll get back to talking about one of the legendary characters of surgery, this time Dr. Alfred Blaylock. Most famous for his work on surgery for blue babies, his story is really one of a lifelong collaboration with his assistant, Vivian Thomas. Don't miss it. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.